Hello and welcome to episode 294 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. It's Wednesday, so of course it's time for True Crime every Tuesday. (laughs) Thank you for joining me for today's story, which is from London and looks at two really disturbing attacks. A huge thank you to my good friend Hayes from Podcast She Wrote for researching and writing this story. Thanks, Hayes. Well, what a night we had at the live show in Glasgow on Thursday. Thank you so much if you came along. I had such a good time chatting to so many of you. Everyone was so friendly and welcoming. We will be back soon. And if it's what your appetite for true crime live events, remember, come and see us in London on August the 11th or CrimeCon is in Glasgow in September. Just use my code UKTC for a discount and I'll see you at the bar. As always, let me begin by thanking all my supporters at Patreon, but especially the new members of this community. That's Connie McFarlane, Charlene Chapman, Lisa Horsley, Neil Matthews, Rob Kay, and Sharon Gorman, who has increased her support. Thank you all so much for joining our community. I really appreciate it. And the latest competition for Patreon supporters? Backstage tickets for the London show on the 11th of August. Just head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. Today's podcast is sponsored by Noom. Like many of us, I got heavier during lockdowns, and although I tried to live a healthier lifestyle, it was difficult to build new habits with the same mindset. Noom has helped me make some permanent changes with their psychological approach, and I am now well on my way to my target weight. I find that Noom works for me as the app is super easy to use, and it only takes me 10 minutes a day. We're all busy, right? So it makes it a realistic thing to do daily. It means I keep it up. The new approach means I can have a less than perfect day, like Glasgow last Thursday, and not ruin my programme. I know that good decisions in the coming days will get me firmly back on track. These reasons that I use Noom are probably why 80% of Noom users finish the programme, and over 60% have stuck with their goals for at least a year. So lose the weight for good. Sign up for your trial at noom.com slash UKTCpod. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash UKTCpod. Okay, so let's set some context for today's story with our guest the month and year game. Top of the UK charts was Blue with If You Come Back. Yeah, yeah, we both know that you're a fan. In the US charts, at number 9 was Nickelback with How You Remind Me. And in Australia, it was more heavy rock from Bob and the Gang with Bob the Builder, the album. In the news this month, TV drama series 24 starring Kiefer Sutherland premiered on Fox. We saw the debut of the film Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone in London. The Greek authorities held 12 British plane spotters on charges of spying. Remember that? And this month saw the death of Mary Whitehouse and also ex-Beatle George Harrison. Did you get the month and year? It was November 2001. Cassandra McDermott was born in 1982 to mother Jennifer. She had two older sisters, Sophia and Andrea, who were 11 and 13 and adored the new addition to the family. And Cassandra was known as the baby long after she passed the infant stage. Growing up in a family of strong women, 
Cassandra was said to be a whirlwind. She was constantly busy and on the move. Cassandra was very independent, and just three weeks away from her 20th birthday, she'd already moved out of the family home and into her own place. However, when in October 2001, her mum planned two weeks away in Jamaica, and told Cassandra she was welcome to stay at the house in Granville Gardens, Norbury, South London in her absence, Cassandra was happy to take her up on the offer. And why not? After all, as independent as you may be, there's something very comforting about being back in your family home, surrounded by the familiar, isn't there? Thursday the 25th of October was just another day for Cassandra. She'd visited a friend that morning before popping in to see her sister at work. Later, the car that she was driving collided with a bus and was completely written off, although she was okay. She contacted her ex-boyfriend, Mario Soler, to ask if she could borrow his car later. She then got a taxi to a local internet cafe, and while she was there, she realised she'd left her mobile phone in the back of the cab. It wasn't a great day. Cassandra stayed in the cafe until around 11.30pm, before collecting Mario's car and driving to Streatham to pick up a late-night takeaway. Once considered a rather run-down area, Streatham in South London has become one of the go-to locations for young, professional, attractive people like me. Streatham's bustling high street is said to have so many different types of restaurants, you could eat your way around the world without leaving the district. And on this occasion... Cassandra had opted for Indian takeaway from one of these establishments. She then briefly stopped at a petrol station before heading to the family home to eat her food. The following day, Jennifer was concerned that she was unable to get hold of her daughter Cassandra. They'd spoken several times since she'd arrived in Jamaica, so it was really unusual for Cassandra not to return her calls. Jennifer spoke to her other daughters, Sophia and Andrea, both in their 30s with families of their own. When neither of them could get hold of Cassandra either, they both decided to head to Granville Gardens to check that everything was okay. Everything wasn't okay. On entering the house, they found the body of their little sister, partially dressed and half wrapped up in the duvet, on the floor of their mum's bedroom. Andrea said, My mum was in Jamaica and Cassie was looking after the house. I walked in and saw Cassie covered up by a quilt. As soon as I pulled back the cover, I knew she was dead. Finding her body was the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I gave my own sister CPR, knowing that she was dead. An ambulance was called, but it was too late. Although it initially seemed as though Cassandra had choked on her food and her death was accidental, the bruises on her body suggested there was more to the scene and the police were notified. There was no evidence of a burglary as nothing was taken and there was no signs of a break-in. So had Cassandra known her killer? As Jennifer's brother broke the terrible news to her that her beloved daughter had been killed, she immediately boarded a plane back from Jamaica as the police began their investigation. Just who would want to kill Cassandra? She seemed popular with a wide circle of friends. As we said before, she was a whirlwind, a real ball of energy that made things happen. She was fun and vivacious and had no enemies that anyone knew of. So just who would want her dead? The police had an immediate suspect, ex-boyfriend, 22-year-old 
Mario Soler, we had a checkered past. At age 17, Mario was involved in the gang rape of a vulnerable student at Lewisham College, where he and his co-accused were studying. They lured the girl to the college basement where the attack took place. Despite denying any involvement, Mario was found guilty and sentenced to five years, reduced to four on appeal. I know what you're thinking, just four years for such a terrible crime. How shocking is that? However, by age 19, Mario Soler was out of prison and he met 15-year-old Cassandra McDermott at their local carnival. Mario had always had a flair for football and was hoping to become a professional player one day. Cassandra was quite taken with him, but she explained that she was still at school and she wanted to concentrate on her studies. Mario was persistent and the pair soon started dating, but it was not thought to be too serious as they were both still so young. It's unclear whether Mario told Cassandra about his previous arrest, but if he had, she presumably believed his protestations of innocence and she felt comfortable around him to begin with, although this soon changed when his volatile temper became more and more apparent. Sadly, once again, it was not long before Soler became violent towards Cassandra. The law at the time did not recognise under-18s as being victims of domestic abuse, but she eventually told Soler that she didn't want to be in a relationship with him, although the pair remained his friends. When Mario Soler was arrested on suspicion of murdering Cassandra, he was uncooperative, refusing to answer any questions, but opting to release a prepared statement instead in which he admitted being with Cassandra for three hours on the day she died, but insisting she was alive and well when he left her, so she must have been killed by an intruder. He would only offer vague answers to questions submitted, and crucially, would not specify any time frame, so the three hours could have been at any point between Cassandra picking up the takeaway and her body being found the following day. There was no CCTV evidence of anyone entering or leaving the McDermott family home that evening, so the police looked elsewhere. At the time, Soleil was living a transient lifestyle with no permanent address. However, he was known to be staying at a YMCA hostel in nearby Croydon at the time, which had numerous security cameras installed to ensure the safety of its residents. Footage from these cameras clearly showed Soleil arriving back to the hostel at around 5am. Also around this time, Cassandra's post-mortem had been completed and evidence discovered was released to the police. The contents of Cassandra's stomach showed undigested rice, vegetables and processed meat, suggesting she died within two hours of eating her last meal. Detective Chief Inspector Nick Scholar, who was leading the investigation, concluded that Soleil was almost certainly there when she died, based on the contents of her stomach. Soleil was finally charged with Cassandra's murder, and the trial began at the Old Bailey, in October 2002, a year after her death. Despite the evidence presented by DCI's scholar and his team, the jury found Mario Soler not guilty, citing the purely circumstantial nature of the evidence as the reason behind their decision, as there were definite grounds for reasonable doubt over his guilt. The team who'd worked so hard on the prosecution were more than disappointed with the verdict as the man they believed was guilty was released a free man. DCI scholar turned to Cassandra's mum, Jennifer, and said, he'll do it again. 
Once acquitted, Soler understandably wanted a fresh start. He legally changed his name to Mario McNish and concentrated on his football career, rising to the heights of being a semi-professional player at Maidstone United. He moved across the river to North London and soon began dating Cara Hoyt, who he had met when she was 15, like Cassandra. Cara did not disclose the relationship at first as she was unsure how both families, who were close friends of each other, would react. Soleil was, after all, 10 years older than Cara. After dating Soleil on and off for almost four years, Cara was tired of his violent outbursts and told him it was over. She'd met a new man, Junior, and he treated her with respect. He seemed a genuinely nice guy, and Soleil didn't like it one bit. He was incredibly jealous. Cara was working as a hairdresser and had aspirations to be a model. She was also planning to attend college on her hairdressing course so she could learn new skills. Junior was supportive and encouraging, unlike Soler, who seemed to enjoy constantly putting Cara down. Cara was also unhappy with Soler's explanation of what exactly happened on the night of Cassandra's death. She could not bring herself to believe he was responsible for killing her, but it still seemed as though he was not being entirely honest. This feeling was exacerbated when Cara found several newspaper cuttings and court documents relating to Cassandra's death amongst his belongings. If he was completely innocent and wanted to put the whole episode behind him, like he said, why would he keep mementos? Surely he'd just want to forget it, wouldn't he? Cara was happy to move on with Junior, but Soleil was not ready to let go. He bombarded Cara with texts and phone calls, begging her to take him back and then turning aggressive when she inevitably turned him down again. It was a Saturday night in February 2007. Cara had been working at her hair salon all day and was looking forward to returning home to a ground floor flat in Walthamstow for a relaxing evening with new boyfriend Junior. At around 11pm, Junior sent Cara a text saying he would be over in about 20 minutes. So when there was a buzz from the intercom shortly afterwards, she was not concerned and went to answer the door. But standing there wasn't Junior, it was Soler. He demanded that Cara come out with him, but she refused, saying she was expecting Junior over for a quiet night in. Soler was enraged, and as Cara turned her back to him, he grabbed a hammer that was by the front door and smashed it, into the back of her head. Stunned, Cara barely had time to register what was happening before the next blow hit. It was a ferocious attack, with Soleil hitting Cara's head with such force and with so many blows that her skull was split open and bone fragments became embedded in her brain. Soleil, convinced that Cara was dead, was about to flee in his black Mercedes parked nearby when he was startled by a noise. Junior had arrived as promised. Becoming concerned that the light was on but Cara was not answering the door, Junior looked through the letterbox and was shocked by the glimpse of the bloody view before him. Seeing Cara's feet and hearing her moans, Junior knew that there was no time to waste. He ran to the back of the flat and smashed a window to gain access. As he did so, he registered with confusion that the hall light was now switched off, so turned it back on 
eliminating the gruesome scene in front of him. It would later come to light that Soleil was still in the flat when Junior arrived. He'd switched off the light to aid his escape and was seen by a neighbour running from the block and speeding away. What happened next for Kara was like something out of a horror film. She was in a coma for three days, during which time her family were invited to her bed at the Royal London Hospital to say their goodbyes, as there was a very real chance she would not survive for extensive injuries, having already been resuscitated nine times. Much to everyone's relief, Kara pulled through, but when she opened her eyes, the first thing she saw was her attacker sitting by her bedside, holding her hand. I remember he held my hand and said, We'll find the person who did this to you and make them pay. I was terrified he might try to hurt me again. I felt uncontrollable rage and fear explode inside me and wanted to scream, It's him, it's him, he's the one who did this to me. But I was covered in tubes and breathing through a ventilator. There follows a long period of rehab for Kara. The head injuries had left her with significant brain damage and she was unable to speak for several months. Meanwhile, Soleil continued to visit, even asking Kara's sister Taryn, who she thought could have done such a thing. Although Kara was unable to voice her distress when Soleil was in the room, her physical reactions did not go unnoticed. Her sister Taryn, seeing her sister flinch when Soleil tried to pick up her hand, unable to push him away, felt completely helpless. She visited a psychic out of desperation and was told that the perpetrator was someone close to the family who drove a dark car. It was hardly explosive new evidence, but Taryn was becoming more and more convinced that it was Solaire who had so viciously attacked her sister, leaving her for dead. And Cara was still very unwell. Physically, she was partially paralysed down her right side so that she had very limited use for right arm and right leg. Her ability to speak was limited to single word phrases. She used writing, drawing and gestures to express herself. Eventually, Cara was able to scrawl words on paper. Taryn immediately asked the question, Who did this to you? And in a shaking hand, Cara slowly and painstakingly wrote the name Mario. Taryn followed up with, Are you saying that Mario did this? And again, Kara wrote slowly, absolutely determined to get it right. Yes. As Taryn sat back in her chair, shocked, yet determined to get justice for her sister, now the truth was out, Kara picked up the pen once more. In her trembling hand, Kara wrote carefully and deliberately, Cassandra. Detective Chief Inspector Nick Scholar had been drafted into the Walthamstow investigation as the similarities between the death of Cassandra McDermott and the brutal attack on Cara Hoyt could not be disputed. Both were young women who met Solaire as 15-year-olds, had experienced domestic abuse whilst dating him, ended their relationships, moved on with their lives and had been violently attacked in the early hours and he was well aware of Solaire's propensity towards violence. He knew he was unable to keep his temper in check. It seemed he just couldn't control his emotions or his actions. 
There have been a hugely significant shift in the law since Soler was acquitted of the murder of Cassandra, which saw the abolition of the 800-year-old double jeopardy law, preventing an individual from being tried for the same crime twice. As you're probably aware, the law was devised as a very well-meaning attempt to avoid the persecution of innocent people, but loopholes such as this were soon pounced upon. And with huge advancements in forensics and DNA testing, more cases were being uncovered where new and significant evidence had come to light after a non-guilty verdict due to lack of evidence. As a significant part of true crime history, it's worth briefly revisiting the case that would eventually lead to the law being overturned. It was back in 1989 in Middlesbrough in the northeast of England. 22-year-old Julie Hogg dropped her three-year-old son Kevin off with her parents. Julie was in the process of divorcing Kevin's dad, Andrew, and needed to go to court to pick up some documents. When Anne called her daughter the next morning, there was no answer. Concerned that she might miss her court appointment, Anne went to her daughter's house, but again, there was no answer. She called Julie's brother, and they broke into the house, which was locked up, but there was nothing to note other than how clean the house was. Julie Hogg was reported as a missing person, but the police assumed she'd run away due to the stress of the divorce. It was not until several months later, when Julie's estranged husband Andrew returned to the house, that he noticed the smell and finally located Judy's decomposed body crammed into the small space behind the bath panel. She'd been in the house the whole time. Local rugby player Billy Dunlop was arrested after Judy's keys were discovered with his fingerprints under the floorboards of a house where he'd been staying. Dunlop was tried twice for Judy's murder in 1991, but the jury were unable to agree on a verdict both times, so he was formally cleared. He was later jailed for another assault, where he gleefully boasted to a prison guard that he'd already got away with murder and the most they could get him for was perjury. Julie's mum, Anne, campaigned tirelessly for a change in the law as a result, and in 2005, the government repealed double jeopardy, ensuring retrials are allowed in cases where new, compelling, reliable and substantial evidence is uncovered. With the double jeopardy defence no longer available, Billy Dunlop pleaded guilty to murdering Judy Hogg in September 2006 and was sentenced to life with a minimum tariff of 17 years, earning him the dubious honour of being the first double jeopardy killer to be convicted. So back from the northeast and back to today's story in London, and Mario Soler was back in the Old Bailey, and what a terribly sad time it was. But this time, eight years after Cassandra McDermott's sisters discovered her body and Soler had invented an unknown intruder to explain her death, he finally pleaded guilty and admitted the truth. He said he'd visited Cassandra around midnight, there was an argument and he beat her, finally punching her so hard that she choked on her food and died. Kara, concerned about the court documents that she discovered in Soler's possession, asked him to tell her what happened to Cassandra that night. Soler admitted to Kara that he was responsible for her death, but didn't mean to kill her. However, after admitting his crime, Soler panicked that Kara would go to police. The night he attacked Kara, 
was a calculated attempt to ensure she would remain silent. Soler was given two life sentences and told he must serve a minimum of eight years after pleading guilty to the manslaughter of Cassandra and was given a concurrent life term of at least 23 years for the attempted murder of Cara. He was the first person to be convicted under the new double jeopardy rules after the landmark case of Billy Dunlop. It couldn't be proved that Solaire had gone to the house at Granville Gardens with the intention of killing Cassandra, but it was his attack that directly caused her to choke on her food and he made no attempt to call an ambulance which may have saved her life, which meant there was no doubt he was responsible for her death, so the eight-year sentence was deemed appropriate. Cara could not face Singh Solaire in court, but was there via video link and had written a powerful victim impact statement. Mario, why did you do this to me? I don't hate you, I pity you. I'll get better and better with each day and stronger. You've only damaged my shell. I am still the same determined and strong person I always was. I leave here today free, with the whole world at my feet, and a new life to be whatever I choose to be. You, on the other hand, have a long time to reflect and to understand that you cannot control another person, that their life is just that, theirs. The judge, Paul Worsley, told him, You present a very real and continuing danger to young women with whom you enter into a close relationship. So what do you make of what we've heard today? This is a particularly difficult case to listen to, I think, this week. Two young women suffered terrible domestic abuse, with one being killed and one almost murdered. And what about Soler, a potentially bright and lucrative future ahead of him? He could have achieved great things and used his influence in a positive way, yet instead he chose to destroy the lives of so many people. But there is some hope, some inspiration to end this story today. Jennifer McDermott and Cara Hoyt became very close during the trial and Jennifer is eternally grateful that Cara was able to identify her daughter's killer. Jennifer wanted to create something positive in Cassandra's name and created the Cassandra Centre in Croydon in 2007 as a result. Starting out as a hub for support for young victims of domestic abuse, the centre now offers support across the community for tackling loneliness in the elderly women's health, LGBTQ plus support, sexual health, counselling and education. The motto of the Cassandra Centre could be applied to so many of the cases we read about in the world of true crime in relation to domestic abuse and is certainly something to bear in mind. If it hurts, it isn't love. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, please join us on the Facebook group. You'll be made very, very welcome. And to keep me producing this show every week, please support me at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash UK true crime. You'll find over 45 bonus episodes, other exclusive content and competitions such as the chance to win backstage tickets for a glass of wine or a beer or a Coke before the live show in August. Okay, so that's all for me for today. So thank you very much for joining me again. Thanks again to Hayes for researching and writing this story. 
So I will see you again on Tuesday. <clears throat> That's Tuesday next week. So until then, please do take it easy. And most of all, stay classy. Cheerio for now.